Heavenly Father, we um, come before you and we look forward to your um, time with you. Uh, we're thankful, Lord, for the ways that you work and that your truth even gets expressed in nature. We just pray, Lord, for wisdom to know what that truth is. Um, while we can't know every last ounce of details, um, we can know that there are certain things to do that are in our capacity to do. So, Lord, we just ask for your your presence and your your wisdom in your name. Amen. I wanted to um, start this talk a little bit by by reading something written in 1938, the 1938 USDA, United States Department of Agriculture uh, yearbook. It's, the book is called Soils and Men. It says, A certain man had a fine horse that was his pride and his wealth. One morning he got up early to go out to the stable and he found it empty. The horse had been stolen. He stayed awake many nights after that, thinking what a fool he had been to put away a good stout. He had been not to put a good stout lock on the stable door. It would have cost only a couple hundred of dollars and saved his most precious possession. He resolved that he would give better protection to the next horse he had, but he knew he would never get one as good as the one he had lost. The United States has been like that about its soil. Within a comparatively short time, water and wind have flayed the skin off the force, off the unprotected earth, causing widespread destruction, and we have been forced to realize that this is the result of decades of neglect. The effort to relieve economic depression for farmers has forced attention on the soil. In the old Roman Empire, all roads led to Rome. In agriculture, all roads lead back to the soil from which farmers make their livelihood. The impact of recent events and viewpoints on agricultural institutions is very great. <clears throat> In the main, they have been they have made for closer coordination and unification so that all may work effectively toward common objectives. What broadly are the objectives? They have been summed up briefly by the Director of the Office of Land Use Coordination as greater stability and efficiency of farm production, the greater stability of natural resources, conservation of the soil and its fertility, better control of floods, conservation of forests, water, forage, and wildlife, greater stability of farm prices and income, and a better rural-urban balance, greater security of tenure, a higher percentage of farmers owning their own land, and a better tenure system for those who continue, continue as tenants, higher standards of rural living and stability of rural communities, governments, and regions. Merely to set down these objectives is to see at once that they cannot be achieved without concerted planning and action by the farmers. Anyway, it goes on, but it this book was written in 1938, and what happened in the 30s in America? The, the Dust Bowl. We had tilled and tilled and tilled until no humus existed really anymore, and, you know, what happens when there's no... There's a precursor that mycorrhiza makes called glomalin, and that's kind of a... That's a binding agent in the soil, so the glomus genus of mycorrhiza makes that component. That's not the only sticky product made in the ground. But essentially, these people had seen the catastrophe that was happening in America. And uh, one of the authors is actually William Albrecht. One of the chapters here is written by him. Yes, it was also drought, but there's there was also tillage of fence row to fence row pretty much too. So there's a number of things that, that went along with it. Um. Would anybody be willing to run my slides? Whitmar, could you step up there? I don't have a clicker. These are two good quotes. Um, notice that we're picking on some different authors here, but one of them is, it was said about 100 years ago, it says, minerals in the soil control the metabolism of plants, animals, and man. All of life will either be healthy or unhealthy according to the fertility of the soil. Um, I think it's... I kind of laugh when I see all this research being done to prevent disease and prevent disease. And um, I'm sorry if I offend anybody here, but it, it's just kind of funny that we we spend all this money and all this time and all this effort, all this brain power, focusing on disease, and we have no idea how to fix it. And the the real the real problem is it's it's just like our spiritual walk. The only way we fix disease is by focusing on Christ, the solution. Well, in the soil. Well, in 
health of animals, you, you focus on the nutrition of those animals. You, you optimize everything you can optimize, but nevertheless, we'll still live in a sinful world. Um, let's just keep going on, Whitmar. So going back, I just wanted to make sure everybody was clear on the... In, you see these labels all the time that have a nitrogen reading, a phosphate reading, and a potass and a potash reading, NPK. I just want to make sure everybody's aware that even though it's total nitrogen, the other two numbers are not total numbers. You have available phosphate and you have soluble potash. I mean, it sounds like, oh, it's going to be pretty close, but you look at the bottom. Um, I've already given the, the instance of like Tennessee brown rock phosphate is a reactive rock phosphate. And though it's expressed on the label as a 030, it's really a 020 with 20 to, well, it's about 28% calcium. Um, how do I calculate it? 20. It's going to release at one point or another. And the healthier the soil is, the faster it's going to release. I mean, the more acidic it is, it's also going to re help it to release too. Well, it's uh, it's available phosphate. What's available right here, right now? Good question. Yeah, I didn't explain that well. Yes, twenty percent phosphate, total phosphate. But they don't. They're not forced into expressing that on the label. A lot of people would want to express it on the label. They just can't by law. Uh, sometimes our, you know, it's like the the analogy of a of a grandma and her cooking pan. Well, why did she cut off the end of the ham? You know, and then her daughter did it and her granddaughter did it. Well, it's because the grandma only had a pan so small. Well, <laughs> we, sometimes our understanding affects multiple generations. Um, and then soluble potash is is what's determined on the on the potassium. So potash is potassium oxide. 83% of that is potassium. Essentially, the best way if you need phosphate is you add the soft rock phosphate and then you also add some monoammonium phosphate for the upfront release that you'll need. Otherwise, you won't really start seeing that. If you put it down in like March, you know, let's say, well, you're really not going to see some of the result results until maybe July or August. So that's a long time. And early in the crop's life, like corn or something like that, you need phosphate up, up front. Uh, much more likely, yes. Much more likely. Not 100% likely, but much more likely. Yes, I mean, once you can build, you can put a lot of phosphate on as the tennis, like the Tennessee brown phosphate is really one of the best ones out there. And it doesn't cost hardly anything. I mean, it's, you're stuck. Don't put on too much. So this is the one thing that's hard to fix in soils is high phosphate levels. Don't get too much. No, no. No, one, yeah, and it's true. Once your biology starts kicking in and you start getting the right things in action, you can release, like my soil, I have like anywhere from like 60 to, I don't know, maybe 250 pounds of phosphate available, but I have a reserve going into 2,700 to 33,000, I think is what it is, pounds. Every soil has more phosphate than what it actually can release, but so it, I, in my soil with my water quality, I'm kind of wondering, well, do I just try to biologically stimulate some of that, use mycorrhiza to pull the phosphate off? I'm, I'm not quite sure just yet, but phosphate? Uh, I don't know of any place in Columbia, not necessarily. Oh, Columbia, Tennessee? Yeah, you probably could. You, you could go to some of the farms here. <laughs> I was... I wasn't gonna say anything, but yeah, I mean, it's they they live in a they live in a phosphate area. Well, it's like if if you live near a boron mine, well, you're gonna have ultra high levels of boron. I mean, it's we live in a we live in a world that did get destroyed after all, and some of these nutrients got concentrated, and we do have to mine them and move them, and in the process, we better the land. Um, go on, Whitmer. Okay, so this might be kind of a common sense rule, but all nutrients need to be in close proximity to the plants. The plants are typically not very mobile. So as you're spreading your fertilizers, make sure to think of your tiny little seedling coming out of the ground. Try to get the distribution on any nutrients even. Try to get it as even as you possibly can because that root can only go you know, it can only access what's what's near it. 
Now, that's not to say that microbiology can't move nutrients laterally across the soil. They've, they've found that calcium can move a meter a day through fungal hyphae. A meter a day, that's quite a bit. So I think there's a lot of this that can happen, but that's not always immediately what you're going to find in your garden. Um, the ideal is to have, I think, eventually, and not, not these blends of nutrients, but the ideal is to have a homogenous fertilizer, meaning every pellet is the same size, the same shape, the same density, the same everything. And that way, go to the next slide. That way some of these, oops, I, I guess I inserted a slide. That way there's certain problems result by having different densities, different particle sizes. Um, this is a fertilizer spreader. I just threw this slide on just because I thought it might be helpful to somebody with a larger area they need to fertilize that's kind of bumpy or, but I, you know, this is just what they call a belly spreader. So we all, we probably mostly know about drop spreaders, which are good, but the problem can be with drop spreaders. If you have a blend of fertilizers, you just kind of bounce, 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 and then you get segregation of the fertilizer pellets. So you get the things that are more dense and smaller, they drop down to the bottom of the hopper whereas with this you know you got springs on your legs so you can kind of buffer that substantially so it's an earthway 3100 belly spreader go to the next one so this is kind of what a fertilizer blend looks like this is the best picture i could find online and i i don't know what i did with my bag of blended fertilizer um, you'll just notice that there's different shapes there's different colors and as you look back there, you can see um, that, you know, obviously there's different shapes of everything. Not everybody makes their pellets with the same equipment. Some things are pressure extruded, and then they have these little finger deals that basically break it into chunks, like the boron, I think, is probably in the copper, probably all done that way. They can just, they have a higher capacity that way. Some things are actually kind of pelletized and pressurized. You know, they're just, two wheels come together, and, you know, they just... They, out they spit a pellet that's round so there is no standardization really in the fertilizer industry they get it within some kind of a range and kind of call it good but it really it, to me it's not good enough so this is the next four or five slides is from J.R. Simplot it's a big phosphate and uh, fertilizer company in the western um, states so like Idaho Wyoming, Montana, they own some phosphate mines out there. Um, this is what can happen. So your intention is to have a, a 2010-5 fertilizer blend. That's the intention. So this is a simplistic blend. Um, oh, yeah, okay, I didn't realize that would be off the screen. Well, you can see, though, that the analysis shows up differently in the different parts of the pile. So this is from... So when they blend fertilizer, they blend it in a big tower. So they're not going to blend yours in there, but I'm just saying this is just take the concepts and, and use them in your own garden. But when they blend fertilizer and then they dump it, just in the process of dumping it, they get the segregation. So they haven't done anything but dump the fertilizer. So that shows that there's varying densities, there's varying everything in it. Uh, go to the next slide. That's called coning segregation. This is called sifting segregation. So as you're bouncing across the field and spreading your fertilizer, so my uh, Oklahoma friend, keep this in mind. <laughs> and, um, you know, you get segregation like that again. Again, the next. And your pattern of throw gets affected from large granules to small granules. These are just concepts that it's be better to know before you actually do apply some nutrients. And you may ask, well, can I just get it all in a blend? Can I just buy it somewhere and just get it in a blend? Well, nobody does that just yet. Powders are hard to handle too. I wouldn't recommend powders. Yeah, you can do that. What I typically do is, like I use a belly, I've used a belly spreader before quite a bit in the nursery business, but also as I ran a, a business. But I actually just, I actually blend it up and then I just make sure I'm not like causing more segregation than I need to. And then I make multiple passes so I'd make like six passes or so, so multiple directions, and you do a crisscross pattern, and you get you get a lot more uniformity. It's not perfect, but you get a lot more uniformity. You can do everything separately, but then you got to make sure that your hundred pounds doesn't run out twenty feet 
away from it should and that you don't run over 20 feet. You know, there's things like that. Whitmar does, in your beds, you pretty much do everything separate. Yeah. So it's not impossible. Um, powders are hard. Yeah. The question was if I prefer not to use a micronized powder. If there's a micronized powder, you can get to stick on to something else. Uh, that's okay. I mean, but powders blow around in the wind. They blow up in your face. They go in your nose and your eyes. I'm, I mean, anything, anything, anything is toxic. I mean, even water, they have a material safety data sheet on because we can kill ourselves with water. So everything has a toxicity to it of one form or another. So I, I just don't think it's the greatest thing to have fertilizer dust kind of flow up, flow up in your face. Okay. It's kind of like concrete dust. It's all natural, but it's still not, not good. So as a fertilizer spreader would go through the field, this is kind of the way that it would look. Also recognize that the fertilizer spreader that they have up here is a very poor design of a spreader. This is an American version, not a good version. <laughs> There's a lot of fertilizer spreaders out there that are just meant to throw fertilizer without any idea of how accurate it is. So some of the better spreaders in large-scale agriculture, I mean, are these airflow spreaders. Uh, they take more calibration, but they're far more uniform. So just the concept, though, just recognize the concept that, you know, if you're trying to make a few passes at an area, sometimes it's better to make multiple passes. Now, if it's a small enough area, you can just sprinkle it and you can see it. I mean, that's there's no problem with that. I just, you know, there's, there's no use soil testing and, and amending if it can't be applied fairly evenly. And, uh, you know, plus minus 10% is the ideal. Um, how much time do you think we should spend on different fertilizers? Yeah, that's kind of what I think too. The back of the room has a bunch of fertilizers. I've sent this document out because it'd be easy, it's easier for me to explain it this way than to stand up here for four hours and explain it <laughs> up here. Um, I, I, I do want people to read, especially the organic, um, the people that want to grow organically, read the sections on phosphate, um, particularly... Um, particularly be mindful of there are certain situations where you, if you're certified organic, like if you have low phosphate in your soil, low available phosphate, and you have um, high calcium, you have high potassium, you have no organic sources. You're stuck. Um, if anybody ever thinks of anything other than mycorrhiza to release it or maybe a legume to release the phosphate, you're, you're kind of in a stuck position. So um, just kind of something to be aware of. Uh, the other thing is, you know, I, I even list out like cobalt sulfate in this list. Um, that's not something you can typically use in organic certified soils. Now, if, you're, if you have ruminant animals, you can put it into the feed ration of ruminant animals, but you can't use it. I don't believe you can actually use it on the soil. So... I don't think I'll spend a lot of time on this. Um, let me just reiterate. I mean, Whitmar and I aren't like, um, we are chemical free type people, but we're not synthetic purists where we won't use something mined out of the air with a gas and made into a fertilizer pellet. We're not purists in that sense. Um, sometimes some of the best biological growers um, and when I say biological, I mean the ones that are really producing the highest quality of produce. They use a combination. They almost always, and they buffer it a lot of times with a humate or they buffer it with molasses or some carbon structure. Um, but it's just, it's important that our philosophy doesn't get in the way of producing a healthy plant. Um, and the reason somebody was asking me the other day, um, you know, like if somebody needs zinc sulfate, well, is there or zinc? Is there some natural form of zinc, or is there a natural form of copper? You know, there really isn't. It's essentially they mine it from the earth, they refine it with sulfuric acid, and out comes zinc sulfate, copper sulfate, and it's fairly plant available and it is OMRI approved if you buy the right sources. Just look up on the OMRI list if you if you're certified organic what you can and can't use. Um, some of the pelleted material particularly you can't use. I don't know if there's binding agents they don't like, or I think sometimes it's just some of the chemical companies, they just don't want to go through the, the hassle of making every ingredient certified.
let's keep going. If anybody has any questions like on specific fertilizers, I mean, I'm happy to answer and I could go, but there's no way we're going to get through them all. So um, this was my next talk, but since I didn't actually make it last time, well, we'll start now. So choosing the resources, the end matters. I encourage everybody to look at that email about all the resources. And when you get a soil and you, when you want a soil test done, why don't you do one that, that is certified organic or organically done and one and maybe say make another recommendation so it's not organic. It's just, you know, regular commonly found items. Uh, sometimes and many times there's a many times there actually is a better source than an organic product. Uh, like we've mentioned, we've talked about compost and manures. Well, they have tremendous variability huge variability batch to batch it just depends on what went into it so the compost doesn't create new elements and it doesn't detract from what was added into it so if it's high sodium cow manure out of colorado it's going to be high sodium manure going onto your property um, you know if the cows were lacking in copper you know that manure is going to be lacking in copper same thing with with compost from veg vegetative material so Anybody have any questions on that? Well, how are we on your email? Um, you're on the, uh, the Ag Association's email, correct? There was an email sent out about three or four days before the event. I was thinking to myself, I'm not going to print all this thing. I, but I thought, yeah, it's, like, it's like 15 pages the way I have it formatted, and I probably should format it better. But, you know, it's kind of a work in progress. But it, there's a... Yeah, there's a document that goes through all the, what I consider all the major um, nutrient resources. Yeah, I got it too and I was able to open it, but I didn't look at the extension, but that's a good, that's a good point. I mean, sometimes I, I get PDFs that I can't open, then I have to have somebody resend it, so I, I don't know. I'm not a computer whiz, obviously. Um, on your compost? Yeah, a compost analysis is, how much is it charged? A hundred? It's quite a bit. So if you're doing a tiny piece of land, it's not you're not going to get a hundred dollars worth out of it. And a lot of times, I do the soil test first to see if I could even use compost before I do a compost analysis. So if it's high in potassium or high in phosphate, I'm not going to do a compost analysis because it's not the right tool. There's a better tool out there than than that. It was a purchased soil. That one, yeah, it was. It was horrible. <laughs> you know, and if you're purchasing compost, let me just, um, I'm sorry, what's the chlorpyr chlorpyrolid? You have to, you have to be kind of concerned about some herbicides that are fairly persistent. You know, we, I worked at a very conventional nursery that, you know, we fumigated and everything. It was like, we, we did it like every chemical pretty much there. And, um, the nursery manager, he actually, it's really funny. A lot of like farm managers and nursery managers who farm that way don't garden that way. Well, he gardened organically. So he got this compost from a municipality in Washington state. And this was before there was a real issue with chlorpyrrolid, which is a um, like stinger herbicide, which, you know, it's really good on thistles. People love it to kill thistles instead of fixing the soil. But he got he had stinger residue in his compost it, it didn't break down and so he couldn't grow beans for about the first three or four years so we are in the last days here and the world is waxing old and humanity is making very dumb choices um there are herbicide residues you know like cottonseed meal well how do they anybody know how they defoliate cotton they sp they spray it with an herbicide, essentially, is what it is. They spray it with an herbicide. So some of that's going to be in the cotton seed. A little bit of it will be as residue. So we just have to we have to be mindful that not everyone we don't we don't want to come across as superior as superior, but we also have to be mindful maybe not everybody else is is thinking in the same pattern that we are. Um, and on the manure side of things, you have to be careful that, you know, there's there are a lot of antibiotics in, in animals. There are um, I guess there's caffeine. I didn't know that. You know, there's a, there's a bunch of things. There's some of the zinc sulfa, zinc uh, supplements coming from China. They're these are industry byproducts. They are not low in cadmium. They are high in cadmium. And uh, 
You know, if if the body is good at excre- excreting waste, it's going to get rid of quite a bit of that cadmium, but it can't get rid of everything, but it's going to get rid of quite a bit of it. Just keep in mind that even though something has carbon in it, doesn't mean it's a pure source. Car- carbon, you can always grow it from the air. You just you just bring the functionality of the plant up, so the root exudate, so you're getting more root exudates to feed the biology. Thankfully, the Lord is coming soon. I'm just I'm looking forward to that day. So. Um, to, you need to kind of know what's in the compost to know if you can use it, how much you can use or not. I mean, it's something better could be like, for instance, you're, you have high potassium, you have high calcium. Compost was not, is not going to be your right source. Um, you need, if you, if you need, um, what am I talking about? If you, if you have high potassium or high cal- and high calcium, but you have low phosphate, Compost is not going to be your source. You'll you'll need like monoammonium phosphate. The ro- that throws out rock phosphate. That throws out soft rock, reactive rock phosphate. So you can see, in nature, calcium and phosphate cal- phosphate goes with calcium hand in hand, along with silicon, along with iron, even along with cadmium. Some sources have more cadmium than others. Um, and you want to make sure your your sulfur level is good. So how to build humus? With the right constituents, you want to make sure your sulfur level is good. I think you want to make sure your molybdenum and cobalt levels are good, that you have mycorrhiza in your soil. Mycorrhiza takes root exudates from a healthy plant. The healthier the plant is, the more root exudates. It takes the carbon and sends it out into the soil, feeding the bacteria and the other organisms right on the fungal hyphae. Um, And then as those bacteria are making their weak acids, then they bring back nutrients back to the plant. So that's the symbiotic relationship that's happening. Um, you just want to you want to make sure all your elements are present at a, at the optimal level. That's that's your best that's your best way of putting carbon into the ground for organic material. That's the most that'll become the most stable organic material also. Um, but you know, in organic material, you it really is kind of tied to how much sulfur you have. You don't want huge excesses on sulfur, but there's a lot of farmland that's very deficient on sulfur. Um, and if you're high, your soil is the one high on phosphate, you'll want to make definitely make sure you, you stay optimal on sulfur because the two are, are antagonistic to each other. Whitmar, you want to, you want to come up here so it actually comes in the um, recording system? What what Sean was saying when you just when you get yourself into a situation here where you don't have a whole lot of options, is um, you want to grow that organic matter in the soil. And even though you're removing that plant residue, the majority of organic matter is actually formed from the microbes in the soil, not the residue of the plants. And so, if you optimize the the, the soil conditions, you're gonna grow, you're gonna even though you take the, the the crop off. You know, I do that where I want to put another crop on fairly quickly. Um, so what, what you want to do is if, if you're turning crops quickly, you want to be sure that the maximum amount of organic matter is being generated in the soil. And so that's why you want your biological communities to be um, vigorous because that's where you're going to get maintain an organic matter content in the soil, even though you're removing those residues. I mean, you can compost those and bring them back. You, if you have a problem on the farm, you don't want to bring more problem onto the farm. So the other thing is when you compost those things, you can put them back on. To the, to the material, you just don't want to bring problems off the farm onto the farm if you're already dealing with some of them there. But, you know, the vast majority of, of humus is formed in the soil by the microbes, not actually the plant residue. Actually, there has been has some, some documentation on, on actual conventional farms. They're not even organic farms mm-hmm. where they had much more rapid humus formation. In fact, going from about 2% humus to 4% humus in three years which is unheard of. I mean, most people consider that going from 2% humus content to up to nearly 4% humus content. This was actually in Missouri. Um, there's, there's, <laughs> um, there's been other places where this has been documented, and, and it, it, it's because there was, they couldn't correlate the amount of residue that was produced from the crop with the, the increase in the humus content in the soil, it just didn't match. There was, there was no way that that much residue from the crop could produce that much humus. 
and, and you know, with more investigation into it, this is what they were realizing that as you balance the chemistry in the soil and you get good uh, aeration, is it is the microbe populations as they increase and they multiply that are actually producing the humus content. And again, like, like uh, Sean said, the healthier the plant, the more carbon they're dumping into the ground. And so that's what you, the sulfur, adding the sulfur is allowing for a more vigorous, in a balanced way. I mean, sulfur by itself is not the key, but if it, sulfur just happens to be pretty deficient on most places anymore, because um, they've taken it out of everything. So it's not naturally falling from the air. It's not uh, from uh, coal plants. It's, it used to be incidental in a lot of fertilizers, which people didn't even think about it. It just happened to be there. And like sulfur, superphosphate was one of those things where you had the sulfur and they don't use that anymore. You've got a more concentrated form of uh, phosphate that most people use. Um, but this is what they're finding is that, that, that the healthier the plant, the more carbon is, the plant is actually not growing to the, to the in, in um, correlation to how much photosynthase it's producing. Rather than the plant getting big, it's actually dumping a lot of that into the soil because it wants that symbiotic relationship with the biology that it needs. And that biology is building a lot of compounds for it and then trading back for more photosynthate. So, so yeah, I mean, this has been seen. Now, the, the, one of the things that's a, as a hazard with that is people have gone in and worked their soil um, wet and in under conditions that weren't optimal for doing tillage and everything have lost a lot of that improvement in their humus content pretty quickly. There's. Let me explain one thing. There's two main groups of fungi in the soil. Just, I mean, it's more than that, but there's two main groups. You got the decomposers that decompose carbon into CO2, and then you got those that actually build carbon up. What are, anybody can name a soil carbon builder? So you, so the decomposers would take what you supply it, decompose it, and some of that would end up as humus. But some of it would just kind of work its way on up if the conditions aren't right and just gas off into the air. But what is one group of organism for building carbon into into the ground to make a long start making long chain molecules? My, mycorrhizae is is your main group. Ninety they say ninety to ninety five percent of plants have mycorrhizae on their roots. Ninety to ninety five percent, other than the brassicas, other than the I can't even can't even remember, but there's well, brassicas is one of the big groups. Are those not either? Hmm. Okay. I have some literature back there from mycorrhizal applications. I bought about sixty pounds, but the way, I mean, there's a lot of root exudates that can go into the ground, and you know, the more fibrous your root system is, the more healthy your root system, the more you get that carbon in the ground, and then the mycorrhiza takes it from there. And that precursor molecule for humus formation is called glomalin. It's been isolated back in 1995 at the USDA um, station in Beltsville, Maryland. Take a look at that, but that's, that is your precursor for humus, is glomalin. It's, it's a glue. So, you know, when I took a soils class in college at Andrews, you know, they, they taught me about pedation and peds of soil well something is gluing that stuff together and a lot of times that is glomalin gluing it together um, i'm sure there's other things out there but does that kind of answer the question sure um graham sate would be one resource he has an ebook out there and there's there's some some things written up in there about it his ebook's called Nutrition Rules. You just have to sign up for his newsletter. It's actually a fairly, it's usually a good newsletter. And then Neil Kinsey definitely talks about it in his book. But essentially, if you're producing a low bricks plant, you're not going to get a lot of root exudates off that plant. If you're producing a medium bricks plant, you're going to get a lot more. If you get a high bricks plant, you'll be dumping a lot more sugars and amino acids and everything in the new, in the soil solution. So... I think we probably need to move on. So essentially, you know, back to the question, well, how is, what is, your, how is your soil and how is its condition? You know, it's essentially, it's related to what's our spiritual condition. Do we, can we really identify that or do we need Christ, to, his Holy Spirit to identify it for us? I don't know that I can always clearly see the way I'm acting. Um, 
You know, it says one of the first Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, so essentially the prize of abundant life is at hand by knowing your position and how to fix it. Okay, next one. And so abundant life to the soil <laughs> really requires very healthy plants. And very healthy plants require the right minerals. And the right, mineral, the right minerals feed the plant to feed the soil. The plant really helps to re regenerate a soil. Why is the... Huh, it just looks so different than... Okay, the purpose of food. Um, essentially, we eat for enjoyment, for interaction. Um, you know, we, we need this physical nutrition. The, the quality of food shows God giving to us, you know, through his nature. Um, the Lord can surely bless in our ignorance, but it's so much better if we could grasp onto the health message from the soil up to the eater. I mean, that's really the health message. At the bottom shows some of the plant and animal um, elements. Uh, you look down at the bottom in green, those are known plant elements for one plant type or another. I even put some on there. I took the liberty of putting some on there that I think should be on there. Like, you know, corn needs aluminum, you know, believe it or not. There is some role for aluminum in, in corn. Silicon is needed by pretty much anything that gets powdery mildew and rust. Um, that seems to be a good correlation to what needs powdery mildew. Like Kentucky bluegrass gets powdery mildew. Well, it is somewhat of a silicon accumulator. In the, in the work that they've done. You know, some things need nickel. Pecans need nickel. Uh, river birch needs nickel. Both of these are southern species. So there's some reason. So, you know, our bodies need much. What I'm trying to also il il illustrate here is our bodies need so much more than a plant needs. A pl this is when we talk about plant nutrients, when most people talk about it, not when I talk about it, but when most people talk about it, it's what does a plant require to complete its life cycle and bear seed and start over again. But I guarantee you, if you grew things hydroponically for generation after generation, you'd find out there's more nutrients. Um, but for humans, you know, we have other needs. We, have, we need selenium, we need iodine, vanadium, chromium. We need many more elements that we really don't know how to measure. So there's some shotgun nutrients, and I, somebody had a question, you know, you know, how do you get silicon? Well, I think azomite is a good one. I think Tennessee brown phosphate is a great one. A lot of people don't need silicon, but if you're growing rice um, and you have high arsenic in your rice and, and brown rice has the ability to pull up a lot more arsenic than white rice. But if you're, if you're running high arsenic in your soil and very low silicon, with a silicon accumulating crop like rice, you'll pull up the arsenic instead of the silicon. They're totally antagonistic elements, but you increase the silicon and the arsenic level drops off. So the USDA, I know in India they're doing some studies, Bangladesh, they're doing studies. So we, we have to, we can't just focus on some of these negative bad elements of life or of death. You know, everything can be toxic and everything, every nutrient actually can be beneficial, but not we don't know the biological roles of every nutrient. I'm not saying that every nutrient has a role, but I think there's more to it than, than meets the eye. I see that there's two camps in farming and gardening. There's two camps. I just want to make us aware of these camps. I'm not saying everybody is 100% on that side or 100% on this side, but I'm just saying there's two predominant camps. There's the organic movement, the organic front, which I would consider myself organic, even though I'm not a purest organic. Um, I, then there's the other camp of kind of like a chemical druggie where, you know, everybody sees them as using any, any, any toxic chemical out there to spray whatever bug or weed or whatever. Um, I do grow chemical free. I don't, I don't think that synthetic fertilizers fall into the same group as, you know, gramoxone or paraquat or something, you know what I mean? One of these chemicals. But we have to, this is kind of a good illustration of the, of the fact that, um, you know, maybe our philosophy has gotten in the way of growing for the Lord. Um, we, we can't let our philosophy outweigh what truly the plants are telling us. So for the organic purist, 
it's essentially the Pharisee in need of nothing. Um, a lot of times the compost movement has taken over to such a degree where it's blindsided us to really what's happening in front of us. Um, again, we're not against compost. We are not against manures, but there is, there's a place for everything. There's a, there's a time for everything. We just have to look on both sides. What is the plant telling us? And what are the animals feeding on those plants telling us? You know, is it nutrient dense? Does it store well? You know, does it, um, how does it taste? You know, how does it feel? How does it smell? So I think we need to keep going though. So I think we have a calling, a much, much, much higher calling than being in one camp or the other camp. Um, our calling is actually restoration. You know, our calling is to restore man in God's image after his likeness. And um, I see that a, f a fully um, functional produce is a good way of doing that. You know, to make a good decision, you need full nutrition. Um, to, to live a disease-free life, you need full nutrition. You don't need too much of one thing and too little of another. You need, you need the balance. Keep going, Whitmar. And I'm going to focus on the back bottom right of this slide. Um, it talks about some of, the, some of the ways of determining whether a plant is functional or not. What I'm sending around the room is a, called a refractometer. I took a couple... This is kind of a dried apple, so maybe it's a false reading. But I took two drops of liquid, and I put it onto the um, on the lens. What number are you reading? Me too. Good. So 12, every fruit, fruiting plant, will accumulate a different bricks level. So like variety X apple, you know, enterprise apple will, well, let's take one I know more. Um, some of the peaches that I tested bricks for when I was at Michigan State, at an extension farm, we had between nine and thirteen on peaches. Do you know what an excellent bricks is on peaches? It's uh, eighteen plus, eighteen to twenty plus. We we never got above thirteen, and thirteen was like at the end of the season once it started getting warm, and you know, and our trees at Michigan State they had a huge amount of brown rot in them. They had a lot of bacterial leaf spot. Um, we, I was at a period in life where we were focused on disease instead of on nutrition. Um, and I, I was just doing the analysis on about 150 varieties of, of fruit trees. But your plant functionality, the bricks shows that. Is it functional completely or not? So if you don't have a refractometer, they're pretty cheap. Uh, you can go into anywhere online and buy them. So um, you're looking in the leaf tissue, in the vegetative portion of the plant, you're looking for 12 plus, and you, you want to maintain 12 plus, and there's more to it than kind of meets the eye, and that we'll have time to discuss, but essentially it's, you have to have a couple hours of light in order to get a, a fairly accurate reading. This is looking at photosynthate capacity, you know, how much is it actually producing? It's kind of like the flux of the sun, you know, how much... How many photons are really coming at us each second? Well, this is looking at how much percent dissolved solids are coming at us. How, you know, how functional is that plant? There are some plants like sweet corn where the corn itself has been selected to be a high bricks corn. So the corn's like 24, but then the um, inside the plant, the vegetative portion is like four, you know, so it's just, sh it's just shuttling, it's just shuttling the starches and sugars into the fruit. So we don't want to trick plants. We want to we want to express their genetics. You balance your soil out, and you. In a lot of cases, certain crops have been accidentally selected for to survive well under lower and lower soil fertility as the years go on, or more and more imbalance. So some of the alfalfa has been bred that way. Hmm? No, not really. The vegetative portion and the reproductive portion are different. And the storage portion, I should say, but the vegetative portion should be fairly uniform 12 throughout. I don't know about the root system, but above ground. It should be 12 or greater. Greater is always better. Um, but your reproductive portion, you wanna you wanna get there's a bricks chart out there. I actually had it on my website. I didn't I didn't put it up here on the screen, but every crop um, will have a different brick scale. If you know, like kohlrabi is gonna be different than leeks is different than well, not leeks, but apples are different than oranges, for instance. Peaches are different than Asian pears. 
So, <laughs> um, one thing that some people have noticed, I don't remember if this is Bruce Tanio, but I put a link down there, and when you get the when you actually get this file, you'll actually be able to click on the link and read it. But there's certain there's three main things inside the plant that happen. Well, there's more than that, but there's three main things. The, the bricks is high when it's healthy. Also, when it's healthy, the electric conductivity of the sap is within this range, 2,000 to 12,000 uh, microsiemen. The sap pH is 6.4. That's really telling. Bruce Tanio did, definitely did that work. So he, he was a plant pathologist. So when the, when the pH is low, I think you're lacking cations. And I can't remember if you get insects or fungal pressure at that. You know, if the bricks is too high, then, or not the bricks, but the pH is too high, then you have other issues. So it's just, I'm not saying we measure these all the time. I think the bricks is a good thing just to kind of measure from time to time and kind of correlate your taste buds to the refractometer reading. I think you will see a correlation. I have. So um, at the bottom statement, um, essentially what we're looking for is we're looking for a lot of lipids on the leaves. We're looking for high protein, low nitrate, please, if we can have low nitrate food. You know, do what you can to make low nitrate food. Uh, low free amino acids. Nitrates and amino acids, they just, mites and aphids and anything that doesn't really have a digestive system really thrives under those conditions when they just have, they have all their building blocks to build more, uh, you know, another couple generations of aphids or another, you know, mites or whatever. So that's why you see sometimes why some plants, they just, I mean, the population just explodes. Well, it does for a reason. It's got fuel. Um, essentially, you're looking for resilience also in taste. Keep on going. Have I been going an hour? Well, okay. I wanted to bring up, since a lot of us are vegan in here, and I, I, I've mentioned this, I mentioned this at the morning talk that I gave, um, but I, I want to be really clear that even though we eat a vegan diet, we have to eat. We have to eat fairly smart. We have to make sure that we have all of our needs met. Um, this is a picture of sheep without enough cobalt and sheep with much more adequate cobalt. It's a big difference. Um, I think pernicious anemia is prevalent in America, not as pernicious as maybe what you're seeing on there on the screen. But if you look at my little chart over there, that kind of shows. Well, when the lights come back on, you'll be able to see it. But there's two areas when a plant or an animal is deficient. There's a hidden hunger first, and then when it gets really bad, then you see the visible deficiency. You feel see the visible symptoms. So iron chlorosis is a very advanced iron deficiency of, you know, like turf grass or something like that, or pin oak trees or something like that. Um, you know, manganese is, can be deficient in, in some of the red maples and the red maple hybrids. But just definitely notice that cobalt is at the very center of B12. So many soils, especially here in the south, and I mention this because we're in the south, um, cobalt can be deficient, especially in this region. So don't, um, don't not put it on just because it's, oh, it's only a pound an acre. It can't really do all that much. You know, if you need cobalt in your soil, and also consider how much nitrogen you can make with cobalt, um, just add it in. I don't know where I can get to, but... So again, this is just some of the hair symptoms of diseased sheep in Australia back in the, looks like the 40s, just showing the difference between having decent levels of cobalt and not having enough. Keep on going. I will make it also clear that some of our biggest mineral deficiencies have been like copper and zinc, well, copper and cobalt. Some of these trace elements that really don't get added in at optimal levels. You know, you look at the way a lot of row crop growers, how they put zinc on, they just put enough for the season. It's the sufficiency. You know, it's, it's like saying, okay, what do I need to do, Lord? So we're, I'm right with you. <laughs> you know, just what, what's the bare minimum I need to do when the Lord's just asking just abide in me, you know, completely, 100%. Has any, anybody know pa Pavel Goya in his, some of his talks? How, what percent do we need to be committed to the Lord? 100. That's not a 99.9. .9, that's not a 98. That's 100. 
And I think nutrition nutrition is just no different. It needs it needs to be fairly as much in line as we know how, and we ask the Lord to make up the difference. So this is um, some of the Daystar group. I don't have one person on there that is working at the farm, but you know that's my name, Sean, uh, Josh. You'll probably see him around Isaiah, and then Matt Dealey, Matt Dealey. So. And that's our address, Castle Valley Farms and Daystar Adventist Academy. If you're, I'm just going to put this out there. If you have kids or know of kids that, you know, feel like they need more adventure and they're, they want to follow the Lord with all of their heart, we'd like to, um, we'd like them to come out for a visit and see if, see if we can help them. So I'm not actually one of the teachers there, but I do, I will be doing some agricultural education and, um, you know, it is so central to the development of character that, um, you know, we are in the we are in the final hours. And praise the Lord, you know, He is coming soon. So, any questions? Cover crops. Well, I did in my I did in my document to a small degree. There's a lot more information on cover crops. I would say, um, in terms of organic matter, or in terms of nitrogen, or both. It's very region dependent. I mean, just it's it's like anything else. Just start. You know, it's you're not going to affect anything negatively with a cover crop. Maybe though, if you have high, I take that back. Maybe if you have high phosphate, I wouldn't be growing oats or legumes. So, well, yeah, I probably wouldn't grow legumes. You don't want to release more phosphate out of your soil or buckwheat. Those are the phosphate releasers. Yes. Oats, legumes, and buckwheat, especially buckwheat, really can release a lot of phosphate. So I would hold off on that one. Techniques for soil analysis. Oh, yes, that is true. Yes, there is a soil probe in back. And essentially, when you take a soil sample, you want to walk through your field and not gather the really extreme regions or the really on either end of things. You know, if you have a an old manure spot or something, please avoid it. <laughs> it will show up. But I, when I take a soil sample, I take it six inches deep if I'm going to till it, and I take it four inches deep if I'm not going to till it. Um, and then you send that off. You send 12 probe cores, put it into a Ziploc, seal up the Ziploc, and fill out the soil form, and you send it off. I have a, a, a couple soil probes in the back if you want to take a look at one. One of them is collapsible. It's just, it's got a screw on top, and then the other one is just a T-probe. Um, you don't have to have a probe to take a soil sample. You just want to make sure you have a very even slice top to bottom. You don't want it like a cylinder or a, a, like a pyramid shape or something like that. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.